namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasam So good evening to everyone. Uh, so all of us at the monastery wish you well and good health on this Vesak, uh, Eve of Vesak. We've been uh, celebrating Vesak by reading the life of the Buddha from Nyanamoli, Venerable Nyanamoli's Life of the Buddha, which is an excellent book. It takes extracts from the canon and then lays out the life of the Buddha uh, from the canon. So on Vesak evening, uh, we read from the uh, last year of the Buddha, the last three months of the Buddha from the Parinibbana Sutta. <clears throat> and uh, then we went to a new shrine which we've developed. I think you might have seen that on the website. We have a big bronze Buddha that we shift around in the winter as we take our tent a big marquee down we put the bronze buddha in the in the barn and we thought we're moving this buddha around a lot i think the buddha's not going to be happy so we thought we'd give it a more uh, permanent home until we build a dharma hall so we took the uh, carport <laughs> in the uh, in the parking lot that we have most of you know and we created uh, inadvertently and outdoor shrine where you can come and distance yourself from us and <laughs> pay respects to the shrine. It looks, it looks really neat. So we, uh, we gathered around that on, on Wednesday evening and we had read the, uh, the, the Parinibbana Sutta there and then we chanted the Tipiso three times together and then we circumambulated around the monastery. We went, those of you who know the monastery, went out the back trail uh, by the Kutis and then to the front again. So that took about an hour of circumambulation. And then we finished with an hour of meditation. And that takes me to the, the question I think that Sarah had last time about ritual and uh, chanting and uh, imagery and um, all of that it's I could you could see how if you have a tradition like that that we have you just plug into it on these uh, significant days and it raises the mind into a kind of brightness that is communal rather than individual the chanting isn't mine the reading isn't mine I've done this every year for 45 years now and each time it has a great significance for me because it's not about um, it's not about interest and novelty, rather it's about a reminder of eternal values and, and my own gratitude for the, uh, this beautiful being, the Buddha, whoever he might have been. And it's hard to relate to the Buddha as a, as a human being uh, because the, uh, the, the suttas themselves can sound very mythological and be very... Um, grand grandiose and so it's, it's hard to perhaps relate to the buddha as a human being so i i just take it back to ajahn cha what uh 
what an amazing being he was. And then I think, yeah, well, the Buddha was probably even more amazing. And so I tried to bring that sense of awe to the human being. But the Buddha would say, well, don't look at me, look at the Dharma. So when you see the Dharma, you see me. When you see me, you see the Dharma. So he wasn't the person who emphasized his own, um, his own character or his own personality. Obviously, he was a strong person. He must have been very charismatic, as was Ajahn Chah. With Ajahn Chah, his, his charisma was not uh, an effect that he used for any kind of egotistical or, or selfish purpose, but rather it was his tool for uh, his method, his personal method for drawing people into the Dhamma. I think Ajahn Sumedho asked him, why are you so charming, Tanopa Chah? And Ajahn Chah said, oh, it's my hook. <laughs> so he could use his personality in a, in a very wholesome way, right? Um, so I can imagine the Buddha in his time, he must have, just must have been such a radiant being. And now we benefit from his brilliance and his, all the army that he developed. And, and to have a form, to have chanting, to have a shrine, to have... Uh, lights on the shrine, to have flowers on the shrine. These are these are very these are things that truly uplift the mind. I I think like Western Theravada Buddhism tends to be very Protestant. You know, it's very kind of honed down, kind of um, Tibetans kind of make theirs more colorful, right? Uh, but there is there is a place for ritual and celebration in a quiet way that that is hard to do. In a, in a society that doesn't have that uh, as a part of their yearly rituals. So whereas in Thailand or Malaysia or India or Sri Lanka or Burma or uh, other countries of Theravada Buddhism, uh, where Theravada Buddhism is very strong, these are natural things that, that, that take place. Um, so in any way, you can develop a, a sense of having a shrine, which is, which is significant in your room, rather than a Buddha Rupa just on a shelf. You'll find that if you take care of that, put flowers there every now and then, put some candles there, and, and relate to it in the way of reminder, it can be something that really brightens the mind. Not necessary, obviously not necessary. Um, the Buddha image itself is, is obviously not uh, a human representation of the Buddha, it's a symbol. And so uh, in iconography, you get exaggerations of certain uh, like the shoulders in the, in the Buddha image are exaggerated. The, which one do we have here? So you have the, the bump in the head, which is, uh, signifies enlightenment and so on. So there's a whole iconography that goes around a Buddha image. So the Buddha image itself is not something you pray to. Obviously, it's a symbol that you reflect from, and it's a reminder of enlightenment. And so Vesak is, is a celebration of the, the Buddha's achievement. Um, I would say he was a, a spiritual genius. You know, I'm just trying to sometimes try to describe him in, in conventional language, yeah, where people could relate. But um, his capacity both to realize the truth and then to disseminate the truth in a way that persists today and to create a monastic order, which I am so, so, so grateful for, to me is an astounding achievement in, in human culture, uh, and, and so I would say he was a, a spiritual genius, I suppose. How do you, how, what kind of language do you want to use? Um, 
so so on 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 Vesak, if you if you can like every year read a life of the buddha or you don't have to wait till Vesak and and go through the story it's a really good story <laughs> and 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 just pick up those themes each year or, or more often if you want and that is a kind of refresher and reminder of direction of possibility that there is a possibility of enlightenment and that human beings do this kind of thing and that's a good contrast to the economic worries and the particular familial problems you might be dealing with it gives a kind of grandness i think to the human vision and yet and yet the buddhist teaching is very much grounded in the ordinary very much grounded in the ordinary that's maybe part of his genius um, so what i what i wanted to reflect upon is, is how things cease in, and how things end. And this is something that um, probably having been a monk for half of my, more than half of my life, I kind of appreciate how it works, obviously. And it does work. <laughs> and, and so to share with you and to perhaps give you the confidence to do this work. Uh, if we go back to the, to the meditation, um, so you know how I like to teach. I say, just make conscious the the, the sound in the room. Yeah. Now, w what I'm asking you to do is to emphasize awareness of sound rather than make a commentary about the sound. And we're we're very good at making commentaries about life. You know, we we know how to focus, we know how to analyze, we know how to um, criticize, we know how to make judgments, we know when something works and something doesn't work. So the manipulation of the external world, we're, we're pretty good at. We're pretty good at that. What we're probably not so good at is, a, is an awareness which is receptive and, and isn't engaging with sight, sound, taste, memory, feeling, which isn't engaging, but still knows. And, and that I was describing in this meditation as receptive awareness. So when I'm receptive to the sounds in the room and I let go of the commentary, then sounds are just sounds, right? Uh, I could make a commentary, oh, the ventilation is on or the whirring of the computer is on or the birds are going to sleep, the birds sound. I can make a commentary about that. I could describe it. But in this case, I'm, I'm saying, well, what if I don't describe it? What if I make no comment and I just let sound be sound? And when I do that, uh, and I allow sound to just be sound, what I begin to notice is the silence that is behind sound, which is the silence of awareness. I begin to notice that, yeah, if I make no commentary about sound, then behind that, awareness is a very, very still, and very, very silent. And then I, as you know, I ask you to, to like go to the hands. You go to the hands, you get the same experience. You start to intuit uh, or a silence or a stillness, which isn't dependent on your sense experience. So the, the, the listening to sound and the feeling of the hands, I begin to see the knowing or the awareness doesn't depend on sound or tactile feeling. Right? And so that begins to, for me, inclines me to an intuition of what the Buddha was asking us to realize because the Buddha's enlightenment was there is as you know the unconditioned the uncreated the unoriginated the unborn 
stillness, peace, transcendence. And it wasn't, he didn't, he said, it's not, a, it's not a sense experience in the usual way. It's not like a beautiful sunset or, or a delicious loaf of bread or a, a loving relationship or it's negative, you know, it, it, it's not beautiful in a sensory way. And so um, to intuit that, one has to begin to not be constantly taken up with sense objects or preoccupied with sense objects. Now, much of the time we need to. You need to care for your children. You need to make sure that the snow has been shoveled. I heard of snow today in Ottawa in May and so on and so forth. So, we, you know, we're always dealing with life, but dealing with life is endless, isn't it? It's just always something going on. And having, having dealt with it the best we can, the, the suggestion from the, the Buddhist teaching is there is something which is not a sense experience and yet is always present. It's not about the duality of happiness and unhappiness. It's something which knows happiness and unhappiness. And when I, you know, when I suggest listen to sound, I'll feel the body. What's what I'm inclining towards? I'm inclining towards the unconditioned rather than conditions. When I hear the sound and the sound like maybe of the ventilation system becomes odd and starts clacking or whatever, then yeah, I go pay attention to that and I fix it because something's broken. So I'm not dismissing the need to be involved in, in the world of objects. So when you, when you do exercises like that, you begin to understand what the, the practice of awareness is bringing you to. It's a practice which can be with uh, sight, sound, taste, bodily feeling, uh, smell, mental phenomena in a way of, of, I would say, peaceful coexistence. I can peaceful coexist with that. And I, I always recommend that you begin to understand this in, in something which is not threatening, very neutral. Uh, you can do that. Then, of course, then you have reality of life, which is much more complex. So then you have uh, like emotions and worries and fears and so on. But emotions and worries and fears and angers and resentments and jealousies, these are, are still phenomena or objects in awareness. And what you're trying to do, I think, in Buddhist awareness practice is begin to be receptive to those as movements in consciousness rather than always be reacting through them. I think we all know that. Very difficult to do, isn't it? Very, very difficult to do. But if you do exercises of simplicity and, and tr seemingly trivial exercises, then some kind of intuition in you begins to click when life is more complex. So this, before, before this meeting, I was sitting in my room and contemplating the bird feeder. Another trivial example. I'm always talking about my bird feeder. Now my bird feeder is dominated by grackles and I call them hell's angels. And they come swooping down and all the chickadees rush away and the Finches rush away, and then, then every now and then I, I tell the grackles, get out of here, and they fly away. So my preference is chickadees, <laughs> and my bias is against grackles. Now, that's ridiculous, right? Grackles are grackles, chickadees are chickadees, nature's nature. But I'm for the little guys, right? 
So the hell's angels swoop down and they're just dominating. I said, come on, give the little guys a break. So then I open my window and they fly away. Now I can't do this all day, otherwise, you know, I'd never make my meal. <laughs> but, but then now I, you know, like before this meeting, I thought, okay, I'll just watch the bird feeder and watch my reaction to grackles. And this is a trivial example, right? So I just watched. So the grackles came down. The first thought was, hell's angels, get out of here. But, uh, oh, this is, this is an emotional reaction to my bird feeder. Huh? And, and so uh, I just watched. Okay, this is, grackles do this to my mind. And then the blue jays came. Huh? Blue jays do the same, actually. <laughs> And where are the chicken? And I could just watch that not, not only was there a visual image, there was a habitual response to the visual image. Now it's trivial, but it's actually very profound because that's what's going on all the time, but very quickly. And so I just watched and watched until my mind stopped reacting to grackles. And it was just grackles and feeding. And my mind reached a kind of neutrality on that particular habitual response to the hell's angels. <laughs> now, uh, that's easy to do, but what it indicates is what we mean by cessation. Now, the, the response that I had to grackles was something that I had built up in my own mind because of my preference and uh, because of time huh? and over time, uh, and the strategy I had to get rid of the grackles, which Vipassis helped me, we rebuilt the, <laughs> the bird feeders so that the grackles would have less opportunity to get on it, all of that, that created a mental phenomena in my mind, which was reactive to grackles being on the bird feeder, right? So that's come up. I made certain intentions and certain actions, and I created in my own mind uh, a, a habit which then reacted to the grackles. Now, that might be very good if the, if the grackles were like rats trying to get into the uh, monastery and um, uh, destroy the walls or, or whatever. Yeah, I, you know, this is a good habit to get into, get rid of the rats from being in your walls. I'm not saying you can't do that, but this was a, just a trivial exercise in observing mind as mind. So that's what I was doing. I was observing not just the visual object, but I was also uh, observing the mental object, which was annoyance or, or whatever have you. Nothing serious, trivial, but actually a very good exercise. So then as I, as I, as I noticed, with grackles as condition, there is the sense of get out of here grackles. But if I noticed that reaction and I just watched it and observed it, then the reaction ceased and I had cessation of a habit. And that's the end of kama, the end of that particular kind of kama or, or, or activity of mind or habitual activity of mind. And, and I like to take trivial examples like that because then they always bring up in my own heart a sense of intuition around the more complex issues of life. And the more complex issues of life are, are like, fears and, and resentments or whatever it might be. And they can be very, very insidious because they've been developed for like 40 years or 50 years. They've been developed in, 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 uh, from childhood or from close relationships. And they're obviously much more 
challenging to deal with. But if one has that sense of um, grackle practice, for want of a better word, uh, then if you have enough awareness around the certain, let's say, patterns of your own mind, which tend to plague you or, or cause you suffering, then you can make that a project. You know, like I made, I made the bird feeder, the project around grackles and the conditioning around that. Then you take a more, more complex project. And let's say, well, the example I often like to give is just the example of you, maybe you feel resentment about someone in your circle of companions, friends, or workmates, right? So let's say it's someone who um, you feel uh, resentful for uh, because they're more successful or their uh, their language is not nice or, or you know they talk about things you don't like whatever it is but you find you find a certain kind of reactivity going on with that type of person and you've talked about it and you've done everything you could do let's say so then you make it your project, just like you make the grapples your project. You make your project, okay, I'm going to try to now witness the mental reaction that arises in this uh, association with this person and family, whatever. And I'm just going to try to be a witness without comment to my reaction to that. Now, that, that's more difficult. But if I do that, if I do that, I begin to inclined towards cessation of that particular habit. So um, then I'm in that situation or I'm thinking about that person and then I notice it. It's like the grackle now. The memory of that person or the person in, in, the, in the group that I'm talking to, it's like the grackle. So let, let's say the person has a, 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 a political viewpoint which is diametrically opposed to mine. That usually is very, brings up a lot of passion, I'm told. Um, and they're very right-wing and I'm very left-wing and I have to be with them, da-da-da-da-da, okay? And as soon as they say something from their particular political viewpoint, I find this reaction coming up into my mind. And the example I like to give uh, is when, when, you've probably heard this example, but when we were in Thailand uh, and Nixon was being, um, what do they do when they get a president out? Uh, it was being impeached. Um, we didn't have any news. It was a really backwards monastery. And uh, a guy from the Peace Corps came through the monastery and uh, we started to hear about Nixon and the impeachment. And Ajahn Sumedha began to notice that every time the word Nixon was mentioned, this guy went ballistic. So he started to play with this guy. So they'd be talking, blah, 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 and he'd say, Nixon, ah! Nixon. And it was like the grackles. He was conditioned with the sound of Nixon, and, and he would just become apoplectic, right? And, and then Ajahn Sumit said, do you realize that every time I just say that word, you go, you go off. What do you mean? Well, Nixon, no, no. But this is about your mind. This isn't about politics. Your mind is now enslaved to a, a certain kind of person or whatever. You know? So you, you could see, let's say, if that is the, like a particular scenario in your life, if you had a kind of experimenting mind, then you could say, okay, uh, I'm going to have a look at that mental reaction and try to witness it every time it comes up. Now, I'm not dismissing the need for discussion or, 
or argument, that's fine. But what usually people do in a Buddhist context is they, they, you know, they, the, that reaction comes up and then they think, I shouldn't be reacting like that. And they react to the reaction. Or they believe and then just go for the reaction. But quite often we don't know how to just sit with the reaction and witness it. Now, if you do that, you'll find that it'll, it can cease right there, but then it'll come up again. And then you'll see it actually comes up with other situations, but it's the same reaction. And now when you do that, you're kind of getting further back into the experience of your own mind. And you're saying, oh, that's a habit. It's not just about this person's viewpoint. It's not just about my political viewpoint. It's just a habit of mind, which is reactive and whatever each time. So you, you start to get a more feeling of the Dharma of your reaction, just as I'm seeing the Dharma of my reaction to the grackles. Yeah? Uh, it's not about the grackles, it's about the mind. So then, then you, you're starting to be really conscious of this reaction as an object in mind, rather than be the person who's always reacting or the person who thinks they shouldn't be reacting. And this is what we mean by being fully conscious. So you could, you could be in a family situation, right? And, 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 and someone is talking and you could, you could kind of know that you're reacting to the person. You can, you can maybe say, oh, I'm reacting, I shouldn't be reacting, but you wouldn't be fully conscious of the reaction, I would say. You're not really mindful in the Buddhist sense of the reaction because you're still the person who thinks that they are reacting and they shouldn't be reacting. So just knowing that you're feeling annoyed or irritated or fearful is not really full mindfulness. Full mindfulness would be the stepping back and making conscious the feeling of the reaction. And that's why I kind of use that language. Um, so let's say you're, you're, you're in a situation um, I like, let, let, let's say you're, you're, you're in your room and you've kind of done what you want to do. And now you're feeling restless and you don't know what to do, right? Should I, should I watch some Netflix? Should I write an email? Should I make a sandwich? Should I meditate? And, but you want to do something, right? You're kind of restless. I want to do something. Now you'll know you're restless, but you won't be fully conscious of restlessness. When you say to yourself, this is what restlessness feels like. What does it feel like? And then you stop into that witnessing silent knowing, then you're fully conscious of restlessness. It's different, isn't it? So you can kind of know, but you don't know in a Buddhist sense. Now, when you, when you take that restlessness, in this case, as the object of awareness, then you feel discomfort. You feel the discomfort of wanting to do something, and you feel the discomfort of not of unfulfilled wanting. But if you bear witness to that, and you feel, oh, this is what wanting feels like, this is what restlessness feels like, and you don't pick an object to, to satiate that, you just stay with that feeling, oh, this is what it feels like, then you start to re realize the cessation of restlessness. Your mind, because that's, it's impermanent, it only needs thought and energy to keep it going. So if you have the acuity of attention, the intuition, the interest, all kinds of things, right? To witness to that, and you witness it, you witness it, you witness it, and then it comes to cessation. You see the ceasing of restlessness now, not because you had another object of distraction, 
but because you knew the object of, of, of the mental object as something that arose, persisted, and ceased. And in that ceasing, you incline towards the unconditioned because your awareness is not dependent on that condition. You knew it right through from its arising, its staying, and its ceasing, its birth and its death. So you knew the birth and death of, re of restlessness, but you were not born and you did not die with that. Or you have restlessness and you think, okay, uh, I'll have a sandwich. Okay, so you have a sandwich and you eat that and that's okay. But then after four bites, you're restless. So then you switch on the, the, the internet or something and you look at the news or whatever. And then maybe that's not enough and you put on music, right? But all the time, your, your mind is just going out into sense objects. And okay, you do that for half an hour, then the habit of mind, the comma of mind, is that whenever you feel restless, go and do something. Eat something, create something which is not immoral, but it always takes you to another object and it takes you into the cycle of birth and death, becoming, doing, and then having to become and do again and again and again. So it's rather like with the grackles, again, a trivial example. When I first see the grackle uh, uh, land on the birdcage, the first reaction is one of discomfort. Why? Because I want chickadees and want grackles. It's wanting, isn't it? I want the world to be a certain way, and this damn grackle is not making it possible. So it's a grackle's fault, obviously. Yes, but it's also my mind, isn't it? So then I witness to the discomfort of the grackle sitting there. And this is the difficulty with the, with the, the human condition, is that we have to sit through quite a lot of discomfort to come to the sense of deep peace. Because our, our craving minds, our minds to uh, get away from the unpleasant towards the uh, pleasant are so strong and so habitual and so ingrained in us that we, we're constantly moving away from the center, away from silence into objects. Now, again, we need to do that. You know, I, I need to put bird seed in the bird feeder and I need to do all those things. I'm not dismissing that. We're actually very good at that. But the other, the other, this kind of receptive, waiting, watching, and then ceasing. So you find that uh, a negative impulse like jealousy might come up or, or whatever it might be. Then right there, that, that discomfort of it coming up, you want to fix it. You want to go out and do something about it, which is okay. It's all right. So if someone was into abusive language and hurting people with language, I'd say to him, stop doing that. Just don't do that, right? But if a person already has a sense of moral value, which I think we all have, obviously, and have, we all have a sense of integrity, we are, are good people and we want to do good and we want to do better, I don't think those grosser um, manifestations of human ignorance are a problem. I think we're all on board for, for sila and for, for goodness and generosity. That is apparent to me to all the folk that are here in this gathering. So the problem usually is not so much the arising of these negativities, it's the inability to witness them as objects and be patient until they cease. I think that's the challenge. And it, it is for me, and I think it is for anyone who has this yearning for truth and peace and, and who does not like to see violence, who does not like to see 
um, poor people starving or whatever, who has compassion, and, and we all have that. So the, the, this, this kind of receptive awareness is actually an aspect of compassion because what it does, it accepts everything uh, without, without uh, demanding that the world of mental phenomena or physical phenomena be other than it is. And, and that sense of open, receptive awareness, I think really is what love is about. Love is a, a difficult word in English because it usually involves liking and passion. But really, when the mind is very open and accepting and allowing, then it's able to respond from goodness. And it's not into critical judging, getting rid of. But what if your mind is critical and judgmental? What about that? Well, wouldn't the antidote to that be to be open to the criticism and judgment of the mind as an object? Then, then you're starting to put into the mind the feeling of acceptance of criticism and judgment. But if your mind criticizes and judges your critical and judging mind, aren't you just doing the same thing, right? Isn't that just the same program? So if, if, if one has negative states of mind, which I think we all do, and they come up, then would not compassion be to say, oh yeah, uh, jealousy feels this way. Would that not be like acceptance? And, I, and, and again, we're not acting on it. If we're acting on it, I say, no, don't do that. But I think we're all there. So as, the, as these things come up, the, 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 the pettiness or the jealousy or the resentment or the, or the irritation or whatever it is, can, if, we, if we can say, oh, it's that way, just as I suggest with a sound that, that uh, a, 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 a petty mind, say, a petty mind state is just this way, it's just like the sound, then you're going against desire. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to be with it. It seems actually for me, it seemed, I think for many of us, it seems counterintuitive. No, I should be doing something. I should rectify this. I should fix this and I should get rid of it. Well, sure, you can put in things like may all beings be well, maybe may they be free from suffering and so on. But again, I think we're already there. I think our intentions are may all beings be well. I don't think we have to do that. Now, if I'm deliberately plotting the downfall of my neighbor and thinking cruel, vindictive thoughts, then yeah, then you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. But usually the case is that we understand metta, we understand bhavana, may all beings be well, may they be free from suffering. But then in our own negativity, we don't allow it to cease. We don't have the patience and trust and maybe open-heartedness to see that this object is not who I am. I am not this jealousy. I am not this fear. I am not this criticism. This is just conditioned karma. So with the, with the <laughs> grackle example, sorry to keep that coming up, with the grackle example, uh, it's not really me that, has, that, that is doing this. It's the force of habit that is doing that, right? It's not like I'm not sitting there and thinking, as soon as I see the grackle, I'm going to hate it. It doesn't work that way. It's more that having developed a habit of uh, anti-grackleship, or whatever it is, I, then that's what the mind does. That's just what the mind does. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon. Now, I can witness that phenomenon and be patient with it, then the phenomenon will cease because I'm not putting any more fuel in it. And that's the idea of karma, the end of karma. 
And so the end of karma is no longer fueling habits. So the negative habits we have, what are they fueled by? They're fueled by self-thinking. I shouldn't be like this. They shouldn't be like that. I should be different, and etc., etc. Et so it's thought, or wrong thought, wrong thinking, self-thinking, I thinking, my thinking, my making. And, 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 and the, the statement that uh, resentment feels this way is not an I statement. An I statement is, I shouldn't feel resentment. I should like this person. That's, 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 that's another judgment you make on yourself. But they're just the very feeling, oh, uh, resentment feels this way. Be patient. Be patient. It will change. That's Dharma language. And that's what leads to cessation. And then you'll find if you do that, if you do that, if you do that, if you do that a lot, then the tendency towards resentment in this, you know, there are many, it could be fear, it could be anxiety, it could be many, many things, but just as a simple example, resentment, that tendency begins to fall away and it doesn't come up, right? So your mind has been liberated from this karmic negative tendency uh, rather than you getting rid of it and fixing it because you've taken refuge in awareness of change. And you've taken refuge in silence and stillness, and you've inclined towards the unconditioned rather than the conditioned. This is very hard work, actually. It's very, sometimes it's very subtle. It can be like um, just self-definitions you have, like self-criticisms of yourself or judgments of others or how the world should be and, and so on and so forth. And w the indicator is thinking, isn't it? The mind is just thinking in these, in these terms all the time. So right thinking in the sense of, 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 of Buddhist thought is to do good, refrain from doing harm, but in, 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 in terms of stream of consciousness, to know these conditions as they arise and cease, arise and cease, and be the witness of that. So this isn't like becoming a better person, although you do. It's more like uh, allowing the ego negative habits to run their for allowing them to cease, and in the cessation, there's peace. All right, I think that is sort of sufficient to ponder. Um, I could open, maybe I could open the floor to questions or comments, if anyone has any. Ajahn, I have a question here. Uh, please. Yeah. Um, how does intention in these situations that you are describing? Um, Again, please. They, um, the intention behind all this, so sometimes these things come up, as you very clearly mentioned. Yeah. How would you look at the, the intention well, of... You my intention in, in, in the grackle... The grapple case. <laughs> uh, my intention is to know Dharma, and and when I know Dharma, I know the Dharma of annoyance. Then I in, I no, notice and intuit that the peace of the heart is is always available, but that my reactivity, my habit of reaction, takes me out into the ornithological world. <laughs> And that reaction takes me away from the peace of the heart. So my intention is the liberation of the heart uh, to realize the unconditioned. Say, that's why I ordained. That's my intention. My intention uh, is not to become uh, a perfect person, say. 
I've tried that. <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs> so to be, try to become a perfect person always takes me to some judgment because I'm comparing what is with some sense of what I should be, yeah? But when I take refuge in awareness, knowing Dharma, then, and also I take refuge in being a monk. I take refuge in high moral values, in, in, in uh, sharing my life in community. So my lifestyle defines my intentions a lot. That's the background. Without that background, this would not make sense. The background is, is, is a high sense of moral value, uh, a high sense of responsibility, and so on and so forth. If that wasn't there, I couldn't really do that. So having, you know, having that in place, and that's why, I, you know, when I speak to this kind of a group, I think you're all there for that. You're already living good and more alive. So I usually don't, don't, don't go to that bit, but it's obviously very important. But then with that in mind, my, my, my interest, say, my spiritual interest is, is not in phenomena. My ornithological interest is in phenomena. My, my naturalist's mind is interested in phenomena. My woodworking mind is interested in problem solving. Yeah, I have interests. I'm not saying that I don't, but, but my, my deepest interest, obviously, because uh, this is why I kind of joined this outfit and why I, I love the teaching, is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, Nibbana. That is my interest, right? And, and so when I see some kind of impulse coming up, I, 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 I'm more interested in the desire around the impulse rather than the impulse itself. And if I can look at the desire and say, okay, that's the problem, attachment to desire, tanha, as we say, I can witness the discomfort of unfulfilled desire and see it cease, then I'm always on the path to the unconditioned, to Nibbana. So the intention is not to become someone who doesn't have negative reactions, but it's to find the, uh, the place, my real home, which knows negative reactions arise and cease, arise and cease, and arise and cease. As they, as they begin to cease. So the intention is one of non-becoming, uh, of non-aversion, uh, of, of um, uh, non-rejection, right? a non-becoming. And that's always in the present moment by knowing change. How's that? Yeah, okay. Anyone else? Ajahn? Yes. It's Colleen. Hi, Colleen. Hi. Um, I was thinking of um, when you were speaking of the last chapter in the Contemplative Craft book, uh -huh. where you give a reformulation of Ajahn Don. Oh, yes. Noble Truth. Uh huh. As being going outside is the origin of suffering. You want me to give it a go? Love it. Okay. <laughs> Let me just think a sec. Let me the mind going outside. So the four noble truths, as as you all know, is that there is uh, discontent, or there's suffering, or um, there is unsatisfactoriness. That the cause of discontent is attachment to craving. That the end of discontent or suffering is the abandonment of craving and that the path uh, to the end of suffering 
is the Noble Eightfold Path, the realization of the end of, of craving. So Ajahn Dan, so there's that, that's, that's the medical model. There is disease, there's cause, there's cure, and there's prognosis. Prognosis is good. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so there's disease, and, and disease is like whenever you're feeling uptight about something, really. You take it to the smallest thing. Um, and why am I getting uptight about the grackles? Because wanting. Yeah? And what is the end of that suffering? It's a trivial example, but I think these are good. <laughs> what is the end of that suffering is when I accept the, the desire in my mind not to have the grackle there. I have to accept that, be patient with it until that desire ceases and I have peaceful coexistence with the grackle. Not difficult to do, right? But that's the example. And the Noble Eightfold Path is there. First of all, I didn't shoot the grackle, moral, moral precepts. Uh, I didn't swear at it, right speech. Um, uh, I witnessed it. I, wit I had enough samadhi to witness my own heart. I had enough insight, panya, to know that that, that that which arises ceases and so on and so forth. So you have the Noble Eightfold Path activated there. So you have the whole Four Noble Truths there. So, so Lumpa Dan, he reformulated that in, in, a, in an interesting way, which, which many of us like. So if I can remember correctly, the mind going outside is the cause. The result of the mind going outside is suffering. So he switched two and one. So the mind going outside, I see the grackles, right? And, and I, don't, I don't abide in receptive awareness. I go out there and say, you creeps, get out of here. Hell's angels. You're not supposed to be here. So my mind goes outside with judgment or with desire. Huh? So the mind going outside is the cause. The result of the mind going outside is suffering. So I'm going outside because of desire. Right? Now, if I go outside just out of, uh, um, um, just in the nature of looking at things, that's not a problem. It's not suffering. So I'm going outside with a particular agenda, and the agenda is aversion to the grackle. The mind going outside is the cause. The result of the mind going outside is suffering. The mind knowing the mind is the path. The result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. Right? So the mind uh, knowing the mind is the path. That's the Noble Eightfold Path. So in this case, uh, <laughs> this is, I'm really working on this example, aren't I? Uh, the, the, the mind knowing the mind. Now, I, 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 knew the, I, I, I knew what my mind was doing in relationship to that visual image. Right? I, I, I knew that there was a reaction to the grackle, and that's the mind knowing the mind. And, 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 I, and I anticipated, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to, to make that investigation. So the mind knowing the mind is the path, Noble Eightfold Path, and the result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. So my mind was no longer going out there with annoyance. It was just staying home in the heart and saying, oh, annoyance feels this way, feels this way, feels this way, and then the suffering ceased. Now, you might not call that suffering, it sounds so trivial, but that's, you know, it's the kind of trivial models that can uh, take you into the complexities. If you don't learn the models in, 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 in simple things, which aren't threatening, which aren't difficult, which aren't complicated, if you never learned them, then quite often the complex things just overwhelm you. But if you just take that, like, like that seemingly trivial example, use it with a neighbor's cat or whatever you want, right? And, and just using it on trivial examples, you get really strong insight, I think, but also you get a strong sense of how to do the work. 
And then you tend to remember how to do the work in the more complex situations. So the mind going outside is the cause, result of the mind going outside is suffering. The mind knowing the mind is the path, result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. But the going out is with craving, right? Because we're always going to be looking at the world and doing things, right? And, and trying to find the unconditioned in conditions is like looking for a turtle with a mustache. Did anyone get that? <laughs> Have, has anyone found a turtle with a mustache recently? <laughs> it's interesting looking at all the screens and people's reactions. <laughs> Any other questions? Was that covered, Colleen? Yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> anyone else? Ajahn, it's Anne. I have a question. Hi, Anne. You're just you up the road, aren't you? Hi, Ajahn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We had snow here, too. Yeah, a little bit. Um, when, when you say, yeah, this is, uh, so this is annoyance with the grackles. Yeah. This is what it feels like to have this annoyance. You're not, I used to go out and... Uh, that I pose that as a question always and would want words. What does it feel like? Oh, well, where do I feel it? And, but that's not what you're saying. Yeah. That's not what being with it is. Right. Because then I would get into a dialogue with myself trying to figure it out. Exactly. That's, you, you try to do something about it. And the trying to do something about it is usually coming from some sense of um, aversion or uh, idealism, right? And, and that's why I'm using this example of sound, just like make sound conscious, and then going to something more, more, more complex, like make the breath conscious, and you're not doing anything about it. And then trying to apply that principle to these, these insidious mental states, and our, and our tendency to analyze and to judge and to do something about it doesn't allow them to cease. You don't reach cessation because you're constantly engaged with it. You don't leave it alone. Basically, leave it alone. Huh? So try to get, I would say, try to get that, that sense of not touching something with something very neutral, like sound, say. You're not doing anything about the sound. Get a feeling for that, not doing anything about it. And then see if you can remember that when there is judgment or, or whatever's going on. So it's just, it's just making fully conscious the way things are. And it's, it's a lot of people, I don't think they understand what mindfulness is. They don't really make conscious the way things are. They make judgment about the way things are. Or, or they, they think they have to fix it. But to, like, to be fully conscious of something, what is that like? Get to know that. I mean, I, that's the language I use, right? That make, is that? But Ajahn, it even, it's even, not even, without even the judgment of it, yeah. It's not, it's not even putting words to any of it. So it, it, exactly. less than just judgment, there's no word, there's no description. Yeah. Be, before, before it goes into a description. Yes. That's what you want. Pre, what do you pre, whatever. <laughs> Some psychologists will know what it's pre, yeah. uh, but, but just like the sound, I'm not like, when I, when I describe the meditation, I say there is the sound of, of the uh, air, air pressure or whatever, but I'm not doing that. It's just sound, right? 
And, and then you say, oh, this is just feeling, just feeling or just emotion. And then as it starts to try to figure it out, say, well, that's trying to figure it out. You keep stepping back into awareness, back into awareness, back into awareness. It's, 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 it's very subtle, but yeah. that's where cessation will come about. Things will cease. All right? Okay. Thank you. How does your garlics go this year? <laughs> They're looking good. All They're right. looking good. <laughs> okay. Big garlics, all right. Anyone else? Thoughts? Oh, there's, a, there's Leslie. Leslie, please. Um, there you go. I have a question. I'm, I need a little bit of clarification on um, the role of the body in this then. Yes. And is it if you feel the anxiety coming up or resentment, is it, if you go into the body then, is that taking you away from, I'm hearing you say about you want to get into the pre-description. Yeah. Um, is it okay to, to, if you go into the body and start feeling, okay, it's like this, I can feel heat or whatever, is that going too much into description then? No, no, no. That's, that's the best method, actually. Okay. Yeah, because the body um, has no ideals. And it just feels. It has no agenda, really. It just has the resultant of, of whatever's going on. So the body is the best place to recognize that the stronger the habit, the more the body's gonna feel it, right? And, and, and the more subtle you become in awareness, you'll see that all thought has some slight pressure in the brain. And, and in the beginning, your bodily awareness is such that you feel really strong things, like strong fear or strong anger. And as you sustain body awareness, rather than always going to thought, you're, you're, the subtlety of your uh, you, the capacity you have for subtlety in, in bodily tensions becomes greater and greater and greater. You get better at it, right? And then the arising of anything, you, you, you become more and more cognizant of it in the body, and you don't go to thought. And then, it, and, and, and then you learn how to process it through bodily feeling. And, and say, so like the example I always give, I, I've suffered a lot of social fears, yeah? And I and, uh, just uh, learned how to feel them uh, in the heart and in the guts. And it became very, very familiar and very easy, actually. Whenever any sense of anxiety arises, just go there. And, and okay, that's what it's like. And that's what the training is about, where you train in bodily awareness. Um, but you're, you're all, your intention is always this kind of uh, receptive awareness. You're not going to the body to try to get rid of fear. Mm -hmm. right it's just fears this way so the 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 entry into into it is like this the, a, a kind of curiosity okay where does that register in my body but then sometimes it's, it doesn't have any registration in the body that's okay too so you don't have to find a place where it is just let it be what it is because okay. then you start to try to find a place and then you're doing something again in terms of object so if you come back to what the intention is the intention is to to abide in as the unconditioned awareness, say, as a way, then it's not about fixing it. But if, you're, if your idea is about fixing it, 
then you may start to think, well, I have to find a bodily feeling for this. Where is it? And you get into seeking an object called a bodily feeling for this particular emotion. You don't want to go that far. So right. If, it, okay. right? If, if there is a bodily component, fine. If there isn't, fine. But see if you can, if you can hear like the sound of silence or hear the silence in the back of the mind that just knows. Get, get familiar with that. Does that make sense? Thanks. That's very helpful. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you for the question. <clears throat> well, Hi, John. Yes. It's Marjorie. I, I'm wondering if you could uh, speak a bit about awareness and then subsequent action. Um, like in your example with the grackles, just because you've reached that awareness of, of, of what you're doing with that in your mind and your feelings, it, that doesn't stop you from then subsequently redesigning the feeder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to keep the grackles away. Yeah. So what I want to, I want to, I want to understand my mind um, and I want to liberate my mind from greed, hatred, and delusion, right? From those three. And the more I look at my mind, the, the activities which lead to a good result, which lead to, like, for a good result for me is a result which has very little echo in it, in terms of thought and ego. A, a, a bad action for me is one that has a lot of echo in it. Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't, and so on and so forth. So the more purely I can respond to a situation from a place of, of clarity, wisdom, and, and, and compassion, uh, the residue I have is very good. There's no residue. It's just a good, you know, it's a good result. But if the residue is very, very strong, like doubt or, or whatever it is, I know, okay, there's something in my response to that which is loaded, which is loaded in a way I wasn't quite aware of and I didn't expect this result. And then I kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, with that situation, I get these, I get these results which are not good. And I kind of know why they're not good because of whatever, the complexity. And then I go back to the drawing board and try to go, you know, get to the feeling that that, that uh, caused the, the reaction which gave that, that kind of result. Um, so it might be doubt, it might be fear, whatever, whatever it is, but you don't know how you're gonna respond, do you? You know, life, life presents itself like this year in totally weird ways, right? So you, yeah. you don't really, really know. But your best thing is that if you can know your mind, know your mind uh, in, in its modes of aversion and fear, and not buy into the ego thoughts around that and be patient, then your response has the best chance of having kind of a, a purity in it. It might not be appreciated by the other parties involved, like the grackles <laughs> or more complex people, but that's not, you know, that's not a problem if you know you've come from a good place. And sometimes life is so complex, you, you really, any choice you make is going to be fraught. Any choice, there'll be blame. Right? There's, there's no easy way, easy way around it. So you're trying to constantly come back to that clarity of intention. Why, you know, why am I saying what I'm saying? I think, well, because it's my responsibility to say something, say. 
So say my, my say like learning to be a senior monk in this order um, has been a, a, a painful learning curve. I'd much rather be a kind of monk in a workshop who never has responsibilities, <laughs> like any bloke, I think. Um, so just kind of having to say, be a, a leader in a community and having to, to, to admonish people who are not fulfilling their responsibility is a very difficult thing for me to learn because I want people to like me, right? And so there's, there's a wanting people to like me and then being afraid, but then also I have a version and I, and I have a, a kind of inner fascist which arises sometimes, not so much anymore. So all these kind of complex things come up in consciousness, which I don't, you know, I don't ask them to come up. When I, when I first became a, a, a senior monk, much too young, um, whenever I had fear, then my inner fascist would arise. <laughs> And, and then, you know, it was, it was really kind of difficult because I have these strong emotions coming up. I'm supposed to be this compassionate leader who's a total mess. <laughs> this was many years ago. But what could I do? It's my responsibility. I have to lead. I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And then I apologized a lot. <laughs> and then I began to see that that which is in me, which is very demanding and directive and, and as I joke, the inner fascist, and I began not to, not to believe that one. Thank goodness. <laughs> and then the other one, the wanting to be liked and wanting to be loved and approved, I, mean, I don't react to that one. And as those two extremes of leadership began to fall away, I began to be more comfortable with leadership. And then it could say things from comfort rather than from fear, from comfort rather than aversion. But I had to go through that, those horror, and the other monks too, Many monks left me. <laughs> uh, I had to go through all of that uh, to learn. Well, how else could I learn? And I and I only learned about the defilements uh, uh, in my mind around leadership when I was in leadership positions. I didn't learn it otherwise. I don't learn those things in the workshop. I learn other things in the workshop. And 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 so that's the 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 coming from a good place and being an abbot isn't something that you're given when you become the abbot. You know, you be the abbot and everything will be fine. Actually, it gets worse, <laughs> as anyone knows in situations of leadership, if you've never done it before, at least for me. And so all kinds of garbage came up, a fear and aversion, and you guys got to behave, and I'm the boss. And, oh, you know, and I think about it, it's embarrassing. But what could I do? But I'm glad I stuck with it, because those very defilements, um, I learned about them and, and I tried to, to practice right speech and, and on the whole, I think it was an okay guy, you know, I didn't shoot anyone, uh, but I, and through that processing of seeing, because uh, I, I had to say things, I couldn't just watch, right, through that process of, of purification, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy now that I did that, but if my teacher hadn't done it, I would never have done it, no way. I wouldn't have done it, but I had I, I could I had something to surrender to. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to know me you know, like thirty-five years ago. <laughs> is that help at all? <laughs> yeah, it, you, you, I mean the grackle is a very simple example, but it's a good one because you know it, it's so clear. Yeah. The more complicated is difficulties in a relationship. Yeah. But what you said about watching for the uh, residue, uh -huh. that really resonated. 
with me. Yeah. I think that's a really, uh, that's a really good, strong teaching for me. Yeah, that's a good indicator, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. All right. Okay, Marjorie.